Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to Rule of Three, a podcast about comedy. I'm Joel Morris. I'm Jason Hazley. And as usual, we are joined by some people who make comedy to talk about something funny that they love. But this is a special Rule of Three because it's an open roundtable discussion about a subject that interests us. And the subject we're discussing today is stopping doing stand-up. And with us to discuss that are two people who have themselves stopped doing stand-up, despite having done it in the past. Uh, Carrie Quinlan, who is a performer, writer and ex-stand-up and Mark Haynes who is a performer, writer and ex-stand-up. Yeah, I, I, and the nicest bit to hear in there is ex-stand-up. Really? Hearing it's the, it's hearing quite the pleasing. words ex-stand-up it's like, it, it, it's just relief. It's like there's a proper relief. weight off, isn't there? It really is. Just like, really oh, I don't, have, I don't have to go anywhere tonight <laughs> and <laughs> like not worry homework? about getting booze. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, struggle the whole day to get to that point at night. It's like being ex-schoolboy. It's a good thing to have gone. <laughs> yeah. It was fine while it lasted, but it's lovely that it stopped. It's Look. like ex-prisoner. <laughs> ex, ex-kidnappy. Ex <laughs> what? So, listen. What is it? I don't know this because I'm not a performer, and I absolutely would never do stand up. Forget it. But forget the idea of you're playing two thousand seaters or something like that. What is it typically like for a stand up? What does a day go like, or a week? A, a, a week is probably a better a better call than a day. So it's probably once you're established. So once you're doing cl- sets in clubs rather than starting out, yeah, um, three, four, five gigs a week of twenty minutes each. Each one of those involves about seventy-two hours of panic beforehand. <laughs> so what? Five. So set, that's about three hundred and sixty hours a week. Do you set a watch of so you've being worried? Alarm goes off when you've had enough panic. Yeah. And yeah. then and then you go on. <laughs> I'd, I'd I'd have this, and I think this is also the reason why we're ex stand ups rather than current stand ups. <laughs> is I would 
properly not be able to eat lunch on the day I was mm. doing stand-up because really? I'd feel so ill about what was coming up. I had a, a double problem with my act, which is firstly... It, it wasn't some, any good. It sometimes yeah. wasn't funny. <laughs> and secondly, it, there was so much for me to learn. And I'd done it as a series of one-liners, feed lines, punch lines. Oh, and, God, I didn't... Re- right, oh, so like okay. Tim Vine or, or Stephen Wright. Yeah, that sort of yeah thing. I, I think the closest parallel would be uh, at the time I was doing it, with the sort of material I was doing, it was a bit like what Jimmy Carr then did yes. well. Yes. Uh, but the problem for me is I'd, I'd linked it thematically. I was really, I'm a huge stand-up fan. Certainly was back then. I mean, I mean, it really was my life. And I didn't want to just do stuff that that was disjointed. I wanted it to have a through line. And I had, I think by the time I got to 20 minutes, I was nearing 400 jokes in my act. But the problem is, in, each one... Tw- 400 jokes in wow. 20 minutes? Yeah, you can see Holy why it, it was... Uh, I the, was nearing the, four. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with that is it was all links of a chain. And if I forgot one, I couldn't remember the next one. It all had to follow on and flow. Fuck. So the fear of forgetting it, of being 140 jokes in and going, well, I have no way of accessing the next 260. Oh, you can understand yeah. why that was a thing that kept me awake at night. <laughs> yeah. um, it happened once where I did forget, and it, it was because I'd got cocky. And I was, I remember being about halfway through the act, it had gone okay, and I was about halfway through, and I remember thinking, now I'm going to have to get that train probably at 10.15. And <laughs> oh, if God. I can get that train, I can be back on the underground probably for... I remember thinking, are you still speaking? <laughs> and I had to stop and listen. And my mouth was still going, but I had to listen for the joke that I was about to finish. And that was a moment of absolutely white-hot, pure panic. What I wasn't is a comic who could just read a room. And the other problem with, with doing that, not being a comic who could read a room and adjust to it, was if it started to go badly, there was no way to stop it going bad. Wow. So you're, you're the equivalent, wow. uh, in musical terms, of an act who've got some backing tapes. Mm. And if you fluff a note to the backing tapes, the drum machine doesn't know you fluffed. Yeah. And so you find yourself lost up there, unlike a band responding to a room and playing a tune. And if they fluff it, you can giggle, look at the drummer, wink, and, and hit your beat again. It was- so you're up there doing a performance which is on rails yeah and it so was, it was it, top of the pops absolutely it was, Mar- it was Martha's Harbour <laughs> you are the all about me. <laughs> it was it was it was, it was a, 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 I didn't realise when I started it but it was a dangerous way of doing it and it actually became the thing that really made it impossible for me to carry on that sounds that does sound terrifying I, I my thing when I started out was um, I decided very loftily that I was never going to do the same material twice. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that lasted That's three like, gigs. Wow, let's yeah. shoot that let's, down. Let's you, what, burn that to the ground. The, the elementary mistake there, which is something which I think is interesting to talk about with stand-up as a discipline, and one of the reasons I'm not a, a huge stand-up fan. Out of all the forms of comedy that I ever watch, it's probably one of my least favourite next to prank show. I really don't <laughs> like stand-up as a thing. I, I like some stand-ups and I like some stand-up routines, but it's never been my favourite form of comedy compared to sitcom or sketch show or things. And one of the things I mistrust about it is I think it's dishonest because, weirdly, what you're talking about, Carrie, is getting up on stage and just being funny, never doing the same material twice. What I don't mm. trust about stand-up is that tight 10 minutes where someone has learned to pass as the funniest person in the room and they've learned it off by heart and the room can react to them a bit, but there's that sort of fraudulence to it that I'm being a really prissy and prudish about it, but I find it going, I'd rather you were just funny. I'd rather, I'd rather you went for your ambition, which is to get up there and just be the funniest person in the room. 
And I don't really trust that one microphone. Someone's got the conch, like being trapped in a car with someone who's got something they gotta say. Kind of. I the bit I don't I have a problem with with the honesty is I was always honest. I or if I wasn't, um, I made it very clear that I'm being stupid and this is a joke. What it it really bugs me, and it really bugged me then that people would tell these brilliant stories that hadn't happened. Yeah, they made. And up. actually, that I and I think that, that and there's clearly there's a place for that in art, but I but it felt really dishonest. There's a funny wise. thing about one-liners as well, which is they are not pretending to be honest. Yeah, they are never absolutely. honest. And you're absolutely right. What there was, uh, uh, certainly, we watched some Bill Hicks. Yes. We watched the 1989 uh, show, which is now called Sane Man. I we think. all agreed. We said we'll watch some stand-up to, to give a focus for the discussion. We said we watch a, a stand-up routine, which we all agreed was definitively yeah. influential, seminal, one we'd all really liked, and also someone we hadn't looked at for a while, to look at someone sort of at the top of their game. <laughs> I was in Nashville, Tennessee last week, and after the show, I went to a Waffle House, right? And I'm sitting there, and I'm eating, and I'm reading a book. I don't know anybody. I'm alone. I'm eating, and I'm reading a book. And this waitress comes over to me. What's he reading for? <laughs> said, wow, I've never been asked that. <laughs> Not what am I reading, but what am I reading for? <laughs> well, God damn it, you stumped me. <laughs> I guess I read for a lot of reasons, but the main one is so I don't end up being a fucking waffle waitress. <laughs> At the beginning of Bill Hicks's career, he's about as good a technical stand-up. Guy with a microphone yeah. in a yeah. room. He's doing all the tricks, and you watch him, and you go, the first 20 minutes of that Bill Hicks DVD will teach you all the tricks you need to and, do stand-up. And, and you're absolutely right about tricks, because what he was so good at was being in the moment. He was telling you, most of the material is almost like he's saying, this has happened to me, this is a conversation I had, uh, I met this guy who... Bosses. You know what I, I always used to get from my boss? Hicks, how come you're not working? I go, there's nothing to do. he go, well, you pretend like you're working, son. And I go, why don't you pretend I'm working? And it's a brilliantly done thing that you only really notice after I watched that one from 1989. I watched some early stuff of his from 1985, and he's doing the same bits. There yeah. is absolutely, word for word, the same bits. Mm. There's a bit at the end where someone shouts for a, a, a routine or a riff that he's done before about phoning someone in a small town and their phone number being nine. And someone shouts for it, and then they shout for it again later, and he says something which the audience just doesn't react to, which is, we were told we get two plays for a quarter. And he's saying, you're treating me like a jukebox. Yeah, yeah and even that was a piece of material that he used again and again and again. Yeah. You know, just put, <laughs> yeah. Stick a quarter up his ass and get him to do A12. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. The, the repetition of stand-up, I think, is, is one of the hardest things that a performer has to deal with because it's very, very difficult. I mean, it, not so much nowadays. People do tend to do a show a year so they'll take one up to Edinburgh mm. a lot of the time now it will still be a work in progress yeah. and then they'll take it on the tour and then after that it's put to bed and maybe it comes back five years hence but that thing of I used to see I started seeing stand-ups in about 1993 when I was about 17 and I watched them over the years and often you'd see even three years later someone coming in and doing their 10 or doing their 20 and it hadn't changed and it always felt like a dead thing to do it, funnily enough, that around 98, Channel 5 had started and they started showing lots of stand-up. And mm. the reason they did that was because it was cheap to stage and cheap to put on and it did quite well in the ratings. And what you had there was you had all the acts from the circuit doing their 10 or 20 minutes on TV 
And that really sort of, it sort of blew them away after that because they couldn't keep on doing the same 10 or 20. Mm. Yeah, you see the old alternative dies. comics and they were able to do the same thing again and again and again for years because they never had TV exposure. But also because there was a slightly different set up to or the, the you know the stand up that we did was part of second generation alternative comedy i guess mm-hmm. pre that the whole club comic thing doing the same gags was was absolutely fine it's play it was playing your greatest hits it was being a band i remember uh, will mclean who we worked with a lot as a writer said he used to be a pop boy in a working men's club up in uh, the wirral up in birkenhead and he used to go and clear up the glasses from the, from the drinkers and he said he used to watch the comedians the old school comedians out the back before they went on dividing up the material you do that joke about Paddy on the building site you do that joke wow. about mother-in-law and they would divide the jokes up and no one really owned their material but the idea was this, this kept your act fresh without having to write anything new do you think that's what Dennis Leary thought he was doing can I ask you the first in a series of naive questions doing the same material every night does it get boring the sheer fear Stopped it being boring for me. I, I, <laughs> I found it so frightening, but I I didn't enjoy the repetition. And I very quickly began, I, I, it's a terrible thing. It's more about the fact that I didn't like what I was doing, but I didn't like audiences who began laughing at stuff that I was sick of. Oh, um, yeah, that's, that was huge. That yeah. was being re- massively disappointed in audiences <laughs> yeah. for laughing at the stuff that you were kind of throwing away. And, and the stuff that you really worked on, getting nothing. Uh, yeah. And then the sort of the cheap, cheap stuff yeah getting I think, asked I, mean, that, just, that oh, I hated them the hostility of a room I think is another problem I think that a lot of people especially now that comedy because stand up is, is cheap to stage and there are loads of people out there because television comedy started using a lot of stand ups I tended to feel as someone who comes from a writing background rather than a performing background that a lot of the comedy I was watching was people who were very honed at making an audience laugh but hadn't really thought very Definitely. much mm. so yeah. basically you tend to go by default, if you've done a, a, the circuit for a few years, your jokes and your sense of a good joke will be very, very sharp. But you will tend to go for a joke that will make everyone laugh rather than a joke that might be a better joke that makes half the audience laugh because you don't want to die up there. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting to watch someone like Stuart Lee start playing with that idea and say, I'm going to divide the audience up until just one person's laughing, but they're my favourite person. That, and mm. playing with that idea of stand-up. Whereas the mainstream seems to be people who've gone for... The biggest laugh for the most people, and of course, television executives will like that because they'll go, that's a big audience laugh. But as far as the quality of the jokes go, you get there's a lot of lazy references and button pushing. Yeah, there's an interesting thing, I think, um, that I noticed when I was doing it, that there are writers and there are performers. That it's that's And, and stand-up, obviously, is, is both. But you can be a crappy writer and a brilliant performer more easily then you can be a crappy performer and a brilliant actor. Absolutely. The, the audience, the audience in, in a comedy club as well, the, the natural way that they do it is if you're not a name and they haven't bought tickets to specifically see Peter Kay or, or Michael McIntyre, who are people they know they are going to laugh because they've seen before. They, they know they've been funny. When you come out onto a stage for the first time, when you're not a name, people are challenging. There's almost a sense of mm. how dare you come and stand here and try and make me laugh. Let's see what you've got. Sometimes you win them over and sometimes you So don't. you think you're funny is the name of one of the big awards, mm. isn't it? It's, yeah. It's, I think the idea being that that's the challenge of the audience yeah. to go, how yeah. dare you stand It's almost like there. their opening gambit is, come on then. Yeah. But the Barry, thing- Barry Cryer once said the worst thing he'd ever had shouted to him as a heckle was he was doing some after dinner speech or some sort of routine and some guy at the back shouted, earn your money. <laughs> Ooh, oh, the thing about 
about an audience, you see, is when you come out onto that stage, they have an inbuilt thing, which obviously goes back to when we were cavemen watching uh, stand-up. And... <laughs> They they can tell. Barry Cryer. Earn your rock. They um. They, sorry, they, they, Barry. They can, sorry. They can tell when someone is is doubting themselves, and they can tell when someone isn't one hundred percent confident. If you come out with confidence. They go right. Well, that's I'm 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 pleased because he feels he belongs here. She feels she belongs here. Now let's listen. If you come out and they go, they don't know what they're doing. They won't start listening, and and they're so uneasy that they won't enjoy. And it could be the funniest thing in the world, but if you look anxious or nervous, an audience won't go with it. But unless that's, that's unless that's your thing. But even behind, but even then, behind that, I don't know. I don't know how people who do the nervy thing yeah. manage to get across that actually they're doing a nervy thing. I remember watching Daniel Kitson for the first time, the first time he, he won the prize up at Edinburgh, whatever it was called, that particular year. And he won. And, and I watch him going, the brilliant thing about this is you are ostensibly a beta man. You're not an alpha man. You're not playing any of the alpha stand-up male tricks. You are saying, I actually would rather be staying in my bedroom with, mm. Mm. with I, the I, curtains drawn. And I went, oh my God, but you have silenced this room by being an alpha beta man. And mm. there's a performance going on there that you've learned a trick to say, I am a silenced voice that you're hearing for the first time, which is a dynamite piece of stand-up technique, but he's not honestly the person he's pretending to be, because otherwise you wouldn't listen. Do you know what? I did Daniel Kitson's very first gig, uh, and it was in the Leeds, I think it was the Varieties, the theatre, and he'd come up and he was wearing his, his thick specs and he, he had um, headphones on and he was playing um, Prodigy really, really loud. And I remember looking at him and thinking, this guy is going to have a nightmare. And he came out with the most sort of self-assured, large part of the act was about refusing to step into the spotlight and refusing to uh, adhere to the red light which came on when they wanted him to finish. And he just, it was a really odd thing to see someone whose first gig, they knew what they were doing. And I remember thinking then, I don't feel confident in a way that this man feels confident. I couldn't work out the difference. I really couldn't. But you see, you see that in the Bill Hicks thing. The thing that's amazing about that Bill Hicks thing is he's playing Texas. Well, he's playing a college town in Texas. But he's playing Texas. He's, in his routine, he comes out, he says, I am a UFO. I, I stop off in rural towns uh, and, and play to bemused Hicks. And that's his, his persona. He is Bill who plays to Hicks. And he's immediately aggressive. And he says, I deserve to be here and I am going to talk down to you, separate you out, say you haven't evolved thumbs. And it's a way of saying, look, I don't really share necessarily your politics or anything. And after a while watching it, you think, actually, the audience are on your side. Mm. You've attracted an audience who like Bill Hicksy kind of things by this point, but you're still playing the outsider who's come in, who's going to patronise and be rude to these people because actually... That is now your persona, whether that's actually you or not, because that's the way you have, for the last five years, got over the initial hostility of a crowd, even though that's no longer applicable. And you watch Bill Hicks towards the end of his career, and he's still up there being like the lone preacher, even though he's playing to 4,000 people, all of whom agree with him. And I think that's another one of those insidious things that happens to the stand-up persona, is that sometimes it doesn't actually respond to the reality of the room. And you're pretending to be an outsider in a room full of people who absolutely love you, at which point you're going, this is just a performance. What do you do? Sales representative. No idea what that is. I'm so... Uh, yeah, I'm an amusement engineer. Okay? Dude, fuck this noise. What are these fucking careers? I'm a rep, uh, the marketing demographic scratch of the, uh, the marketing of the rep. 
I foreclose on people, all right? Get out of my face. Yeah, yeah this isn't mm. really you. And I saw Phil Jupiter recently do a lovely thing where he just relentlessly said from the stage, this isn't me. This isn't me. Even though he on stage is exactly like him, but he's not him. And you're being fooled that that's him. Because if you had a point with him, he would be 5% different and that five percent is himself. Is oh, everything? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But 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 then that is why stand up is an art and not just a thing. Totally. It's it's you do have to, <laughs> as you can tell, words are my business. Stand up <laughs> is an art, not a thing. Um, but, Someone write that down. <laughs> but it is. I mean, there has to be there has to be a certain amount of this isn't the real you because the real you wouldn't be on stage in front of a group of strangers trying to make them laugh when they often don't want to laugh. Because that's, that's just a dick in a pub, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. If stand-up were a thing, if, if, if stand-up is a thing, it's the dick in the pub. Mm, yeah. That's... Wait, which, so, is, which is why his so, enemy is the heckler, who's another dick in a pub. Well, there is... <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you've yeah. probably seen the clip. Um, I tried to find it on YouTube this morning, and sure enough, it's on, a, it's on a clip called Top Three Angry Moments, Bill Hicks' Top Three Angry Moments, and it's a very early, very crappy video recording of him in a club, and he throws someone out of the club. Thank you, my, my mother. And, uh, you suck. You fucking cunt. Get the fuck out of here right now. Get out. Fuck you. Fuck you, you idiot. You're everything that America should be flushed down the toilet, you fucking turd. Fuck you. Get out. Get out, you fucking drunk bitch. Take her out. Take her fucking out! Take her to somewhere that's good! Go see fucking Madonna, you fucking idiot piece of shit! I love stuff. There's that magic Larry David thing that doesn't even get anywhere near anger, where um, he drove to upstate New York to do a gig at some club, walked out on stage, surveyed the audience very carefully, said, never mind, and went home. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just so perfect. all these things are confidence, isn't it? You're telling the audience, I am in control. Because the last thing you can have is an audience that are in control. If an audience is in yeah. control, yeah. that is heckling, yeah. that's breaking. When I was doing it in 98, and when you were doing it sort of... Same time. Same yeah. time. Yeah. Um, it was a time where, where uh, th- there were two things, really. One is that we didn't have uh, internet and we didn't have mobile phones. So it was harder to book gigs and it was harder to sort of get people in. Although... They were hugely popular stand-up nights. Um, and the second thing that changed was, was certainly, in my experience, was cocaine. And it was an industry that prided itself on excess, uh, booze mm. and drugs. And it made it a very sort of frightening, slightly sort of out-of-control place. But the one thing we also had then was heckling. And heckling was, if not encouraged, it was more than tolerated. It was allowed. So you had these quite sort of aggressive, masculine nights where the audience would be a lot of it would just be I remember seeing Dominic Holland of all people doing this at a comedy <laughs> store where the the night would just be your 20 minutes would become 30 and all you would be doing is trying to get a handle on the audience so you could start your material it would just be continuous barracking you're like it a was, supply teacher it yeah. was it was gladiatorial and, wasn't and, it? and people enjoyed that more Mm. than seeing an act. Someone would then come out and say, my girlfriend, and people would already be booing and there'd be more sort of coming in. And just watching a stand-up have to do lion taming became yeah. a thing that people really liked. Yeah. But yeah, and if you were reasonable at it, you could turn a room around. There was, there was a real magic with that. I mean, I'm, I'm not... I don't want to encourage heckling because eat shit. 
But, because, um, you know, we craft things, you bastards. Um, or did. Don't, not anymore, because of you. Anyway, it's fine. I'm over it. It's fine. Um, but I remember I did... Um, so, yeah, Mark and I did the new act competitions mm. in uh, 1998. There were three big new act competitions in Edinburgh at the festival, which were the Telegraph new act competition, with te- Telegraph open mic, yeah. wasn't it? So yeah. You Think You're Funny, and the BBC New Comedy Award. And we didn't do the same ones, so we never met. So we've known each other for several years and only in the last six months clocked that we were in the same batch of new acts, yeah. but just never because I because I wouldn't I wouldn't do the Daily Telegraph because it was the Daily Telegraph, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tell you how but, big but, those but, big those competitions were. I actually entered the so you think you're funny because it was advertised on the side of a bus in London. So some of the buses had so you think you're funny on it. That's how big those competitions oh. were. How did you do? Uh, well, I won the Daily Telegraph open mic. Uh, but I but Carrie didn't want to win that one. So yeah, I didn't want to win that one because it's a telegraph. I, yeah. I, I didn't even get through to the first round of so you think you're funny. All yeah, the I totally BBC did. Yeah, comedy. I did. I did. How far did you get? I came second in both in so you think you're funny and the BBC one. So, so. you both did really well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Get, get packed uh, it in. Well, uh, actually, what I was going to say about the the, he- the heckling thing was yeah, the, the reason I got to the final. I'm I'm absolutely convinced the reason I got to the final of. The BBC one. I did a, a semi final in Bristol, and at that time, being a woman in stand up, is still probably not the greatest bundle of laughs mm. as an experience. But then you could feel a room as you walked on stage. Go, oh, <laughs> <sighs> oh wouldn't really? you also? I mean, I really? very very recently, I tried um, to book a book a stand up uh, night for charity and was told that we couldn't have more than one woman on the bill. And you think, well, that just increases the feeling that this is the yeah. woman. Yeah, rather oh, it's than a woman or act. a juggler. It was a woman yeah. or, or a, a woman or a novelty act. Oh, I, I'd have the juggler every yeah. time. Oh, completely. Oh, not a woman juggler. Jesus. But I, I, I did the semi final of, of the BBC. I walked on stage, and before I got to the microphone, someone went, get your tits out. Oh, my Lord. I wasn't even there yet. Oh, my God. But thankfully, it, but it completely, it was a, an absolute gift. Yeah. Because I could turn around and say, yeah, standard heckle put down, boom. And the rest of the crowd went, she's all right. You won the room. Completely. In, in one beat. Yeah. That's great. Which was great. And But but also... But, Did you but hire that, someone to shout that from that point on? It was that my mum. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it wasn't my mum. My mum was in the toilets being sick because she was so nervous. <laughs> oh, my God. What? About watching me. But... um. That's what being a woman in comedy is like. Well, quite. Every, everyone just being in the to- in the toilet, being sick. sick. <laughs> um, but the, but that's, the, that's the flip side of the low expectations of being a woman in stand-up, was when you proved yourself, they sort of loved you more. It was That was really tiring. Having to do that every time? Pretty much, yeah. And again, I suppose you're suffering from that billing thing, which is still the problem in panel games and stuff when they book female stand-ups, is you're asked to be the one woman on there mm. and therefore it's very hard to be stand-up personas are really important who are you as in you come out are you Eddie Izzard are you uh, Sean Locke who are you Yeah. and as a woman you're often just a woman uh, I've been talking to Lucy, Lucy Porter about this and she said I wanted to be say the flirty woman and the other woman to be the brainy woman right. like the men were allowed to have different characters as well as man mm. and it's the Smurfette problem that Smurfette her only quality is being a woman whereas Hefty Smurf and Clever Smurf have other things and you see that on panel games and on, on stand-up bills the men can be a rainbow of different personalities 
but the woman's stand-up personality, no matter which one she's worked out to come on stage with, is usually just woman. Woman. Mm. Yeah, I remember being um, flyered for a Lucy Porter show in, in Edinburgh with the words, um, come see Lucy Porter, she's really pretty. Oh, yeah. did that work? <laughs> <laughs> this not, is, not um, really. I've got some flyers here from 1998 when uh, it was the Carlsberg uh, the 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 Ice Beer Comedy Network, which was Avalon's show that they, they sold to all the universities around Britain. And you as a stand-up would have to go. And there is only one woman in the whole of the bill, and that is Lucy Porter. She's supporting. How many people are on the bill? Well, this one, if you went to Surrey University in 1998, you could see Andrew Maxwell, supported by me, Ian Cognito, Rob Rouse, Brendan Burns, Lucy Porter, Dave Gorman, Robin Ince, and Mundo Jazz, and Alex Boardman and Ronnie Rigsby. Um, so she's there as a Tina Weymouth, absolutely. Yeah, the I mean, huge I mean, Talking Heads lineup, the, the, the <laughs> Carlsberg Ice Cream, the, the, the sole woman on not just a bill but a series of bills that took place over three months. I mean, it must wow. have been as a, as a female stand-up. It must have been. A, I I I found it a, a you know a, a frightening thing of going to these these places, these universities that were in the middle of nowhere. This this predates Uber. It predates Premier Inns. You'd have to stay at hotels that were. You know, you get recommendations from the agency, but the hotels. I remember one being driven to one in, uh, I think, I think it was Birmingham or Loughborough, and I got into a cab that, from the university, and I told the guy where I was going, and he said, "Why on earth are you going there?" And I said, "Well, it's the hotel I'm staying at." He said. It's a bail hostel. And he drove us up outside Whoa. it. And there was just, you could see through the window, and there were just men punching each other. And he said, he said, uh, he said I'll tell you what, he said, do you want to come and stay at ours? And I said, yes, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much. And I think about all the times that I was standing on empty train stations with no way of, you didn't have, if, if, if the local phone was smashed up, you had no way of calling home. You had no way of checking if there was a train coming. You had no train app. There was nothing. It really was. And I think yeah. as a woman, that must have been compounded. That must have been compounded to a series of... See, I don't know how anyone could have hacked it. I don't know. I drove. <laughs> there you go. There. That was the answer. See, Can I, easy. Driving a car? <laughs> a woman I mean, I drove it backwards up the M4, but apart from that, it was fine. Absolutely fine. My, my dad nearly got kicked off EasyJet for life once when uh, when he was getting off the plane and he saw that the pilot was a, a woman and said, yeah, not a bad landing for a woman. <gasps> Oh. Oh. Um, can I ask you about your? Oh. You said your stuff was honest. Does that mean you didn't have a kind of stand-up persona, a clown? Um, I could never answer the question. What sort of stuff do you do? Right. I think I'm, I'm just. I think I'm just not very good at. I'm not very self-aware. <laughs> uh, I think that is the main thing. Um, so people would say, "What kind of stuff you do?" And it's like I just sort of. Would it be talk. really? Would it be screamingly gauche to yes. ask either of you if you can do any of your material? can remember any of it. Oh, hello. Someone's, someone's got a notebook. Did you write it the, down? From Mark, the carries this book, Mark carries this book around with him all the time. Wow. It's the first time we've asked him to open the book he carries around all the time. Once the book is open, it can never be shut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mark, you're, you're ha- I've never seen your handwriting before. It's fucking tiny, isn't it? Oh, it has to be, yeah. I mean, you know. Cause, cause all the 400 jokes in 20 minutes. 432 jokes on the back of your hand. <laughs> 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 I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This was, I'd, I'd written my, my act uh, in here. This, this is actually the one I did for The Telegraph. It is very <laughs> 90s. It is very, very 90s, late 90s. And it has the jokes about Hufty. <laughs> <sighs> At the time, it was like, this is quite cutting edge. But the problem is 20 years, it absolutely kicks a load of that edge to bluntness. Um, or it makes it genuinely problematic and wrong. Which is the, the, mm. the thing people are finding with while you're watching Friends. There's a yeah. big chunk of that Bill Hicks thing. After, that he's, was done, a just, after oh. he's done his tight 20 minutes, yeah. I remember even at the time watching that, and I like that routine, after he's done his tight 20 minutes and he's earned the right for the audience just to listen to him, whatever he says, mm. he basically locks you in the back of his car and plays the doors at you and tells you the doors are the best <laughs> band ever. And yeah. if you don't like the doors, he's going to rape some sense into you. And after a while you go, I'm bored of this and this is nasty. Yeah. But at the time, I bet that felt liberating and edgy and the outpouring of his id and probably inspired generations of stand-ups to push something further. Oh, absolutely. And you could see you could see in our in our generation the guys who slightly pick, picked up the wonky message mm. from Bill Hicks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching that back, I, I, I was I was familiar with it, but I'd forgotten actually how you wouldn't do it today. How anti-faggot it is. Yeah. yeah. And if I don't like you, you've got no balls. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you must forget. be a woman. What? Uh, what? You, you might as well be female. <laughs> yeah. And you, you forget yeah. that he is actually, because he looks so ageless, he always looked about 47. Mm. And he's actually, when he's doing that, 27. Yeah. You know, he dies at 32. He's, he's still, yeah. I'd like to say, too old to be doing that. I know, but it's it's a 27-year-old man 18, talking about sex. No, That's the oh. sort of... So I, I was 22 when I was doing this um, and this is uh, this is about nine jokes in um, it's a, 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 a section called therapy uh, I did a lot of therapist jokes worth pointing out I'd only heard about therapy through the work of Woody Allen <laughs> it's already problematic <laughs> Uh, I've had a problem with my self-image for years. I had to see a child psychologist, uh, but that was no good. He just played with Duplo for 20 minutes, drew me a picture of his house, and then his mum picked him up and took him home. <laughs> After that, I went to see a sex therapist. Uh, she taught me to experiment with gender. I turned a female into a lump of gold. <laughs> that actually sounds like quite a contemporary joke. Uh, I, I like to now think of myself as being very ahead of my time rather than not funny. <laughs> Uh, I, this is a joke actually that I have seen and, and when I did this joke this was one that used to when it worked it would get applause uh, and it now seems like quite a hack piece of material funnily enough to bring it back to Bill Hicks when you watch Hicks you forget how much of his material has become stuff that people who have never heard of him say so yeah. things like the warnings on smoking packets yeah. just get the one that says low birth weight found my brand yeah. that is something that every boring person says they tap on a thing go low birth weight oh that's going to be good for me just don't get the ones that say lung cancer but there are about four or five things that he does that have just seeped into comedy well yeah the one mm. of it, this one, lovely one liner about the guys wanting to introduce him to his wife and sister and there's one yeah. woman there yeah. I mean that's now part that's, of the, that's common currency that, yes. in a writer's room that's the first joke you do whenever you go to a rural community in a script yeah, yeah. and this, yeah. this joke when I came up with it Honestly, it was proper groundbreaking. Everyone was like, that is a brilliant joke. Uh, since then, it's become common currency and it makes me look like a prick. Um, uh, I, went to see a I went to see a sex therapist. Uh, I asked her if she realised the word therapist was a compound of the two words, the and rapist. She didn't say anything to me, but she did note something down about it on my file. Now, <laughs> that is technically... I mean, what was funny about this act is, at the time... It did seem quite 
dangerous because it had the word rapist in it. I met my girlfriend in rehab. Uh, I've got a Venetian girlfriend. She's blind. So that was her. I know. Imagine 430 of these. 430. Did you get to a point in stand-up where you started to enjoy people going, oh, I, I, more than a laugh? Because I, I did. I, 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 had a, I, I had a joke that was not good. It was not good. And I used to enjoy the fact that, A, people didn't really understand it, and B, if they did, they didn't like it. And I kept that joke in longer than anything else I did. And it was just, I wouldn't say I have the body of an Adonis, I've got the body of a Londis. It never got a laugh once. And that was the only joke I used to look forward to saying. There, well, there is a point, and I think you, you, may, you may have felt the same. It didn't matter to me how an audience reacted. And that's yeah. a really good sign about when you, you shouldn't be doing this. Absolutely. It didn't matter if it went well or it went badly. I felt absolutely nothing. The only thing I felt was, can I get home? Tick. My favourite bit of doing stand-up by the end was driving home on a Saturday night listening to Bob Harris on Radio 2. <laughs> oh. Could you turn that into an act of just coming up on stage and listening to Bob Harris? I, be- I reckon I could. <laughs> can you remember Let's make any, that happen. Can you remember any of your routines? So um, my first ever gig was um, two days after John Denver died. And I loved John Denver. <laughs> I, I thought he was a genius. Still do. And I was really genuinely upset that John Denver had died. And I thought, I need to, I, I want to work through this. How am I going to do this? And I thought, oh, I've got, I've got that stand-up thing. If I do five minutes on how much I love John Denver, I'm 21. It's going to look ironic. Mm. Mm. That'll work. <laughs> so I just talked about how much I love John Denver and threw in the odd joke but not very much. Um, and then and opened with a really, really unpleasant, horrible joke that I'm not going to repeat Go on. on here. Because so, oh, it's now. really, Save, really Save, problematic. Come on. I will cut it, Birdsong. I'm a, there'll be our reaction, our okay. shock reaction, and the sound of you being thrown to the street. Listen, we yeah. are talking okay. about Bill Hicks well, there, on and yeah, off yeah, as but, well, you know. So, yeah, looking, looking back on it 20 years on, I'm not proud of it. But at the time, I was really proud of it. <laughs> it was, so it was around the time that... Um, TFI Friday was on. Yes. And they had, and the best thing on TFI Friday by far was fat lookalikes. <laughs> it was this brilliant thing where they, where a fat person would come on. Oh, the 90s. I know. It was a terrible thing. But it, was, it was genuinely, because a fat person would walk on and say, my name is so-and-so and I'm a fat Anthea Turner. And you at home would go, oh yeah, <laughs> you yeah, you are. are. That's amazing. And it was brilliant and I really enjoyed it so I walked on stage first joke I ever said into a microphone on a stage as a stand-up was uh, my name's Caroline Quinlan and I'm a fat Karen Carpenter (laughs) (laughs) that is a good gag it is quite a good gag but I'm not proud of it it's it's a sort of I like the fact that your opening set the first time you do stand up you say what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up with a joke about a uh, AOR sort of middle of the road American performer and then I'm going to do five minutes about John (laughs) (laughs) just the room I've just the room perfectly here I am in South London this is bulletproof come on come on come on Bristol University Freshers Week No, but I, I see this. I was watching the Bill Hicks material again and seeing in it uh, a very strange reflection of something I find uncomfortable in stand up, which is a power dynamic where the person on stage with the conch can 
get a reaction from certain bits of the audience that buoy them up and give them power that then means they abuse their position on stage. Mm. And all I can see in that Bill Hicks routine, and it's a dynamite routine with every single stand-up technique you could want in it, is after a while he is using his power on stage to just stay on stage and to say things he wants to say and the audience are there enjoying the, the shape of it but you're going actually after a while you've stopped being quite as interesting as you were in your tight 20 and you are just going on and on about how, how if I don't like the who I'm a pussy or a faggot mm. and you're going and what you're doing there as well is you're punching down because you have the power on there and the audience have bored you up. Enough of the audience have laughed for you to go, I belong to be here and the people who are uncomfortable have gone quiet and after a while he's saying about feminine pop and about mm. homosexual pop that they don't deserve to exist. And you're going, right, this is the seeds of when stand-ups go wrong because the unnatural power of that microphone, that PA and that room and learning those skills of dominating a space mean you're dominating a space like a bully. I think it's worth saying, though, that his, his problem there is not with George Michael or Debbie Gibson, it's with the music, because he does, later on in his career, he does an entire routine about New Kids on the Block, and he levels exactly the same thing at them, because yeah. he just thinks the music sucks. There's a bit where he, well, I mean, I mean, I actually find the bits where he's talking about the bands he likes excruciating, and, and what, what it reminds me of is his debt that he owes to Sam Kinison. Who yeah. is yeah. is yeah. is? I mean, uh, uh, I, I, as a young man, I used to like Sam Kinison, and I listened to some recently, and it was just unfucking listenable. It's difficult, Awful. isn't it? It's really tough, and it's the worst parts of Hicks remind me of the worst parts of Kinison. It's just Kinison was just doing nothing but that for an hour. You know, the, the power of coke and booze. Uh, and, and a microphone. And a microphone. I mean, what but a also toxic actually, combination. The, yeah, but also screaming about his ex-wife, which was genuine. That yeah. was all real. No, he was it, furious It was insane. It. The bits where Hicks... He's making that, that, that brilliant point about you know, uh, selling out and about the difference between the music that he loves and the music we have now. That's a, the wider thing there is he's talking about the changes of society, our, our, yeah. our, our willingness to be force-fed pap. And, God, and he takes a long time doing it, though. He does. Doesn't but he? also, yeah. he, there's bits where he sort of he, he sort of says that Rick Astley is a, a, an AIDS disease that's germ. climbed off a... AIDS germ that's climbed off a slide. And it's just stuff like that that really sort of... I don't know. Oddly, it puts him... For me, that puts him back into... He's supposed to be against the mainstream of American culture. He's supposed to be a, this prophet. He's got... His persona is someone telling you the truth, a truth you've never heard before. Wake up sheeple is his kind of thing. And yet, at that point, he sounds like Rod Little mm. or, or Richard Little John, who are saying something like, hey, I bet this hasn't occurred to you. Some of those benefit scroungers aren't really looking for yeah, work. And, and you go, oh, but... Well, God, what you're saying is what mainstream America already says. That, I think, is dated very badly. And he's using there the power of stand-up to dominate a room to actually say something that is not worth 20 minutes of my time. But I, I think we knew that at the time. A lot of it. Yes, actually, because I, I felt Because it. That, that, was, that was the thing that came up watching it again, was that there's so much of Hicks that I absolutely love. Yeah. But there's always a bit in the middle, whether it's Beelzebobo or oh, Bozo or um, uh, Goat Boy or whatever, that That's makes me go, oh, God, it's really? It's enjoying his personality as well. What I hate about that is he's up there, and this is, obviously, technically he's brilliant. This is it. Again, the technicality of the stand-up means you don't get to heckle or interrupt yeah. or, or say this isn't working and he's doing it and he's going because the audience has gone quiet he goes oh good I've shocked them and he's doing this thing of going 
this is who I am. I'm too edgy for you. I've got this persona that you can't handle. And you go, God, you sound about 13. It's very Adrian Mole. Mm. I'm an intellectual the world can't keep up with you. And it's just boring. No, I, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I think it's, it's in, you know, we obviously have to talk about it in context today. Had he lived, I mean, what, what you know, this is, you could go crazy about this. I imagine he would be He'd be coughing. 62. He would, but I also oh, think he'd be, he'd be following like David Icke <laughs> and he'd be, you know, he'd have gone sort of further down that route. I can't help but, but feel that. But Do you? Time, I, was, I was thinking on the bus on the way in this morning, mm. I was thinking he would be having so much fun with the current president of the United States, wouldn't he? He uh, would be ripping uh, it to uh, pieces. I could, I could almost I imagine he would be that's, that's a right-wing commentator with Alex Jones. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of Alex Jones and there's lots of, uh, of of conspiracy theorists, and there's lots of um, weirdly four channy attitude. What's strange watching him now is he was obviously a very alternative, very uh, against the mainstream figure, but that voice is now the voice of a lot of quite objectionable America. It, it's worth pointing out that at the time, and, and you know, we, we talk about you know the stuff that we're not comfortable with, which I think you know there is a lot of that in there. But if you this was this show that we watched was Sane Man from 1989. And it's really, really difficult to remember what the comedy landscape was like when he was doing that. And, I mean, I had a quick look, and, like, the 1990 winner of the Perrier is Simon Fanshaw. Uh, you know, Dilly Keane from Fascinating Ida, the next year, is nominated for it. I mean, it's yeah. it's an entirely different world. And there Cabaret is this man who is creating... And we watch it now, and it's easy to forget that there is... There was nothing else like but that. But I'd like to point out, I'm, I'm agreeing with Carrie here. I watched this at the time. I had I found Hicks very difficult at the time because I kept watching him going, you're technically amazing. You're one of the best stand-ups I've ever seen. But you are aggressively doing this and you're in love with the idea of being a shock comedian. And I think Hicks falling in love with his stand-up persona is not a very pleasant thing to watch. Well, I I completely fell in love with Hicks. That's It's it's quite interesting. You know, in a, a world now where everything's binary and everything's... I, I love this or I hate this. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Yeah, the um, watching Hicks again and realize, and having having actually pretty similar reactions to first time round. Lots of it was breathtaking and oh my god, he's a prophet and I adore him. And then a chunk in the middle that made me think, oh, oh I don't want to live in your world. Yeah. This we is should, horrid. We should say actually that there are two edits of Same Man. There's a one hour cut. And then there is the one that we watched, which has got an extra half hour of stuff in there. So actually, the one hour cut is the leaner one to see. Mm. If you haven't seen this show, pod dogs. It's brilliant. Do, because it's brilliant. Mm. The first, you said it's this tight 20 at the front of the show, isn't it? It's fucking great. There's yeah. so many things threaded together from the point w- at which he goes from oh, just buying the, buying the 32 forth. ounce coffee and then being stopped for doing waffle. 300 <laughs> miles an yeah, hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How, what, what's the big one? And go, pull your car around back and pull her up. I'll get the pump going. Go to some of these truck stops. Middle of nowhere, meet some serious folk, man. Order coffee, the guy behind the counter goes, you want the 32 ounce or the large? <laughs> His turn of phrase, there's a couple of bits that he uses which are just astonishing, where you just go, there is absolutely no way you could have phrased that particular punchline any better mm. than it is just there. It, it's some well, of some of that work. That's road-tested oh. stuff. And I think, again, with any, any stand-ups tight 20, you are, you are dazzled in the audience at the way that a punchline lands because it's been tried 100,000 times before. And it's got that in common with, with magic, where a magician has practised this trick so many times that they can throw it out 
and look effortless and you can't believe how they did it and the answer is they've done it a million times so you go whoa that's impossible well actually he's tried that and failed dozens of times like an acrobat he's fallen over thousands of times so you get to watch him land on his chin perfectly mm-hmm. but but don't forget i mean he was also doing material that was reactive to things like the Iraq war which nobody yeah. else was doing at the time i mean i mean there would have been people like barry crimmins who were doing barry crier uh, barry crier <laughs> yeah. you know, doing his political yeah. thing did you know uh, barry crier was <laughs> this is a story he told me <laughs> it's a proper barry thing to go i've got a story uh, about uh, barry crier um <laughs> Clang. Uh, on the day of the poll tax riots, uh, he was doing two old farts in the night with Willie Rushton. Oh, yeah. Oh, and two the two of them had been given a Bentley to take them to some kind of dinner they were going to. And the driver drove straight into Trafalgar Square where a pitched battle was going on between all of these sort of like protesters and the mounted police. And uh, Willie Rushton turned to Barry and just went, Well, at least we're not in a Bentley. <laughs> <laughs> But that, that Hicks turn of phrase thing, even in the bits that I find quite unpleasant, there's still time to go, oh, that's that's beautiful. I mean, the, the bit where Dick Clark as Satan is um, yeah. fucking John Davidson up the arse. It, the turn of phrase in there is, I, and I should have written it down and I didn't, but it's, it's, it, there is time to stop and go, oh, that's lovely. There's even a bit in that routine where, which is again really quotable, where he is deliberately going too far to try and lose the audience, and so he gets the chance to say to him, "Y'all are staring at me like a dog that's just been shown a card trick." <laughs> He does that a lot as well. He takes it too far. And actually, in terms of stand-up technique, when he's pushed the audience too far, he'll then push it a tiny bit further till he's lost everybody. And then he'll do a piece of written, structured, rhythmic prose that goes, oh, he hasn't lost it. And they're back in the palm of his hand again. Like you said, the only bit of my stand-up act I'm enjoying is when I lose the audience or when they're not interested. The next thing to say, I can turn this around. I can I can spin these yeah. plates. Watch me juggle this. Bang. And you're back and you go, oh, he's still a professional. Another of the tropes that Bill Hicks comes up with, I don't think anyone has done this before, is he does one of those pieces and there's the pause, the beat, and then the line, I'm also available for children's parties. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's something, again, that you hear all the great. time. I was struck by how much musicality there was in his routine, actually. Mm. I thought because he, he uses his mouth to do things other than speak, oh, doesn't uh, he? You know, he does, he does cricket noises. One of the things that people forget about Hicks, and it's because he's so good at the fiery incendiary stand-up, He's a really, really good inhabitor of character. People say, well, it's a secondary smoke. Is that, is that, it's a smoke that you smoke, but it's not that it's smoke because then... <laughs> it's not, it's a, it's just a smoke that you smoke, that'd be fine, but it's also, there's a secondary smoke, but it's also... The waffle waitress, the the, <laughs> yep. the truck driver, you you get within that stand up. It, it's they they pass so without comment. They're so sort of easily done that you forget that in the course of an hour he does about sixty or seventy tiny little character vignettes that are just dotted throughout. Mm. It's it's and then using the microphone to to get different resonances in his voice yeah. and things yeah. to go up and down and to do things like the the cricket chirrup and things like that, which is Norman Collier good. I yeah, yeah. He, was, he was one of the, I, I mean. <laughs> It was one of the first people I ever saw who who did use that sort of mic thing where he'd, he'd sort of make the sound of the gun and things like that. He, yeah. he, he was the first person who really, that I'd seen, who sort of went, let's think about the audio sound. Apart from this. on Police Academy, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Police Academy, obviously. Where it was yeah. arguably done better. One of my, fa- <laughs> my favourite bits in Same Man, which reduced me to an absolute fucking heap when I first saw it, is the bit where he's doing Elvis. 
um, and when he's wiping his brow with a series of things, <laughs> yeah. and he ends up wiping his brow with a stool before then carrying on being Elvis and dispensing Cadillacs to members of the audience. <laughs> I actually thought that was quite like my longest bit. <laughs> when I watched it, I thought, well, someone's having fun. Not necessarily the audience. But also that's got that that thing that has become quite a boring trope of do it until people are a bit sick of it mm. keep doing it until they like it again because mm. yeah. uh, in the middle of that I sort of go yep got it got it now mm. move on yeah, but oh no no it's good again brilliant you, you can ride, you ride that five or six times if you want yeah. to but he ends up wiping his forehead with a stool oh, you know it's so <laughs> glorious <laughs> obviously if we're talking about giving up stand up and Bill Hicks gave up stand up against his will yeah um, yes. but if we're talking about giving up stand up what is it that we're enjoying someone who's, who's mastering the form and he's showing all the tricks that opening 20 minutes has got everything you need to learn about stand up character pieces mm. uh, observational riffs uh, exaggeration callbacks uh, weaving three or four things in flattering the audience in Insulting the audience. Every single trick is in that opening 20 minutes. Once you've watched that mastery and you're watching someone do this so well, and we're still saying we are so much in admiration of him, what makes you go, either I can't do this anymore, I don't want to aspire to that, or makes you go, this is a form that no longer interests me? I, I, I can tell you what, what I think it is, and it's not why you you change it's something that you lack so Hicks for example speak for yourself <laughs> you were too good for the audience and have moved to another level yeah. Hicks is he keeps going because the one thing he's got is phenomenal drive he ha- he wants to do this and he wants to be heard and he, he wants to be he wants to be famous I've been I've been reading um, Love All The People yeah. which is a collection of, of mainly routines yeah. but there's also lyrics in uh, their letters uh, diary entries and uh, interviews that he did and the one thing he always goes across is that he's a huge star in England he becomes a huge star he's still a, a cult sensation in America like Jimi Hendrix and he wants to be big he wants to be, like a lot of stand-ups, a rock star. Mm. With all the things that come with that. Fame, money, people listening to you, women, you know, it's all its all there. I, I think you have to have, if you're going to be a successful stand-up, you have to have a part of you that needs to do it. You want to be heard. You need for people to listen to what you're saying. And I think it's not so much a case of why you give up. It's that if you don't have that, it rapidly becomes a thing where there are other easier things to do. Yeah. Some people, you know, if you ever if you've ever been out with a stand up, some people will say that that's a massive flaw. It just happens that in stand up that desire for people to listen, to appreciate, to applaud is something that you can't live without. It's why so few people do give up stand up. I mean, it's a lot of people find it intoxicating. You have to be a certain type of person to do it in the first place. I think it's rarer to find people who do it in the first place and don't really mind because the people who do it in the first place are the people who really need this. Can you remember your last gig? And or can you remember the point at which you said, I'm not doing this anymore? Well, mine sort of crept up. I think what's interesting, actually, listening to Mark talk about it, is I think we had we had really similar experiences. Mm. So we started at the same time. We did the New Act competitions. And it moved really fast. Too fast. And it certainly, yeah, certainly for me, it moved way... I, I was doing sort of semi-finals of New Act competitions within my first 10 gigs. I was signed to an agent within my first 10 gigs. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then suddenly do a 20 minutes. You think, exactly Ooh. the same. Yeah. And that's terrifying. And actually, I think was a big part of me giving it up yeah because it it was just it was just too quick and i hadn't worked out what i wanted to do with it but also i I like being a gang is a big part of it for me (laughs) the whole being on my own thing that's intoxicating at first because 
when it goes well, it's all you. And that's oh, messianic and brilliant. And you're just surfing on these laughs. And it's an extraordinary feeling that doesn't last. No. And I found that the whole being on my own was starting to drive me a little bit insane. The thing I'm most envious of is the period, probably in the mid-2000s and onwards, where young stand-ups began doing the same venue together and they'd hang out and they'd, you know, work together and they'd be on the same bills and they had a network. And the one thing I didn't have was a network. Mm. I used to go to a university. I'd be, I mean, I worked with uh, uh, Lee Mack, I worked with, and he was so lovely to me. I worked with other people who, uh, I mean, Ian Cognito was one good stand-up in his day, really good stand-up. He used to come out with a, um, a hammer, oh. nail, and he'd smack a nail into the back of the uh, stage before we started and he'd turn to the mic He'd hang his coat up. He'd hang his, it, yeah, he'd hang his coat up and he'd turn around and he'd say, two things you need to know about me. One, I genuinely don't give a fuck. And two, I've got a fucking big hammer. <laughs> <laughs> I liked Ian. I liked Ian's act. Beautiful. He was, he was a, a really good act, but I used to finish mine. I was supporting him. I used to finish mine. I'd uh, go over to the bar at the end of my thing as you walked through in the interval and he'd be sitting there and he would say every single night, he'd go, that was shit. It didn't matter how it went. He'd just go, that was shit. I was, did, he, did he mean it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, it was. It was hard to say whether it was tough love. He seemed genuinely to dislike me. Um, so, oh, he was saying you were shit. Yeah. He was saying he was. Shit. No. I mean, he was a good act. He was a really good act. So he would he aggressively was, put you down mm. as part of his backstage routine. It wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it was. It was. It wasn't even a backstage routine. I think he genuinely thought I was shit, and he was trying to convey it to me. I was going to ask about by that, saying I was shit. Something. <laughs> something. Something. There's my, a double meaning in that. He, look, he might not have been wrong. Is is yeah. the key. It's just that the, the problem is when you're at that level where you're going, yeah. I'm not finding this very easy to have someone, you know, someone that I admired to just cut you dead every night. I started doing a thing where when I worked with him, he'd mentioned that he was trying to do something on TV. Um, and I began going in each day when we were working together and he'd say, what's going on? And I'd say, oh, I've just got back from the BBC. And I could see him just sort of bristle a bit and go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, what's going on there then? And I'd say, oh, they've offered me a sitcom. And he'd... <sighs> nervous like that. Yeah. And I'd say, it's called Mark. <laughs> it's called Mark. It's, it's about me. I'm not sure it's right for me at this time. And I'd just try and, I'd try and make him have a heart attack. I wanted his, I wanted his head to explode. Um, but it was, it was a large part of it, was, was that I think, you know, they're, they're, it's a much friendlier and kinder and supportive scene. Back then, it was like joining an oil rig and being... 16 and everyone else was in their 30s That's, that astonishes yeah, me I really didn't think it was like but at the same time it's more it's a career now in a way that yeah. back then it well you no one was leaving university thinking I'm going to be a stand-up comic you'd well, sort of tri the, trip over and fall into it slightly the hunger for it on television has obviously made it look more attractive obviously in terms of spaces you can get to do comedy now they are as, as writers we know getting smaller and smaller in the number of slots but there appear to definitely be opportunities for stand-up live comedy still doing really well TV like stand ups, they're cheap to put on. There's there's a, a a regular showcases for them, but that feeling of being a bunch of solo acts. I mean, there's someone I, I was you. I'm in a, I'm in a writing partnership. I don't like working on my own that much. I like the collegiate way that you make TV and radio and books with editors and friends, and you all work together. I found when I'm backstage at a show we're doing where there are a lot of stand ups there, or my wife said the same thing. She was just happy backstage with some stand ups. She went. That's a weird atmosphere mm. because everyone is, in inverted commas, supportive, but there's a real sense that no one's ever working together because you never share the stage together. But that feeling of a room full of stand-ups 
as a non-stand-up, as someone who's never done it, I go, this is weird. It's slightly different in Edinburgh, which is why Edinburgh was so was so magical. Right. Even if you did get on with people and, and made friends on the stand-up circuit, you never saw them. Mm. Yeah. Because you might do a gig together once every six months and, and that, you know, the 20 minutes before everyone goes on and then everyone goes home sort of thing. And that was that was your friendship. And suddenly in Edinburgh, everyone was around mm. and you were surrounded by these people you'd sort of half met but thought were quite interesting. And then the collegiate thing sort of kind of came out. I suppose you're all having a horrible time at once. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There is a sort of funny sense of failure being infectious, which doesn't happen in writing groups. And there is something about stand-up, which is, you know, you don't want to be friends with someone who isn't getting this right because it's almost like a superstition. It's hard to explain, but there's something about being a stand-up in front of other stand-ups that that is the gig that really scares you because you don't want to look like a dick in front of your co-workers. The audiences, you never see them because of the way stages are, and you'll never see them again. But the other stand-ups, the last thing you want is to die in front of them. I do remember my last gig, just to get back to your... Mm. Get back to, I think, it was um, at UCL, and I, I I'd had a car crash in Birmingham while I was going around the country, and I'd buggered up my neck quite badly. It was a real huge smash. I'd, I'd spent about four days with a neck brace on, and I arrived at the gig, and the chap who was putting on the, the gig had seen the neck brace, and we, he said, oh, what's wrong? I said, oh, I had a car crash. Anyway, he introduced me. He did a long 15-minute thing, whipping everyone up. There was a Skoll <laughs> alcohol promotion on, probably 200, 250, and they were, I'd say, three-quarters of them were wearing plastic Viking helmets with horns on. <laughs> and it's a good sign. I, this guy this is, is my crowd. whipping them up. People were just red-faced and mad. And anyway, he said, oh, well, let, let's get him on. Please welcome, direct from his hospital bed, it's Mark Haynes. Now, I'd taken off the fucking neck brace by this point because I'm not going on stage with a fucking neck brace that's got nothing to do with my act. So people looked and they were waiting for a gag about me being in a hospital bed. Oh, no. I mean, it was just a, a bit of a nightmare. And I would got to the point Wrong where persona. I was standing up there and I remember just looking out at this sea of Vikings you know, I mean, it was, you know, hey, some comics die, I go to Valhalla. Uh, but I, I looked out of that and I had a couple of friends there and I, I actually cannot remember how the gig went. And I'm not saying that out of any sense of, you know, oh, it went badly, but I've got to pretend it was good in some way. I don't imagine it went well, but I just remember thinking, I had a moment of real clarity halfway through and I just thought, this is the last time I'm ever going to do this. And the second I thought that, I had another voice that said, Remember how this feels right now if you ever think about doing this again. Yeah. And I had a real moment. I, I can almost like pinpoint the beads of sweat on people's faces. And I can see their open mouths and their sort of lower sets of teeth. It's, it's the clearest vision I have of standing on that stage and just seeing all of these people uh, and just thinking... Lower sets of teeth, but not upper sets of teeth. <laughs> no. yeah. And just thinking, this is, this like is just bulldogs. not for me. It's yeah. not for me. And I, I knew the act well enough at this point to begin thinking, shall I say something at the end? Shall I say... I mean, the, the people there... I could there, be Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> the people there would have no fucking idea uh, who I am. Blackout. You know, yeah. what, what if you've got a huge round of applause for saying, yeah. I'm never doing this again? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, That's a great way to go out. Free skull for everyone. <laughs> I got one laugh. Woo! Um, but I, I ended up... Uh, it, makes me, it actually makes me cringe thinking of it. It's horrible. The Sex Pistols, when they finished... <laughs> this is how much time you have when you're doing an act. <laughs> the sex pistols, when they finished, they said, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Yeah. 
Uh, and and I ended mine by saying, I've been Mark Haynes. Ever get the feeling you've been treated? And it went to silence. <laughs> and I felt as I walked off like I was walking on fucking air. And I put my oh. neck brace back on and I got the fuck out of there. And I've I, I've never done it since. It would it would I can I can that that for me was probably the most important moment of my life, which was not starting stand up or doing it. It was stopping it. It was like taking out a spear. <laughs> in my chest. The greatest final line I ever heard anyone do, and I can't for the life of me remember who it was. And it's probably an old line, but I loved it. Was um, it was one of those ones where sometimes you're rubbish, sometimes the audience is, is rubbish, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason to why it doesn't go well. But it, no one was doing well. This guy finished his set with, "Well, ladies and gentlemen, they say you're only as good as your audience. So tonight I've been a bunch of cunts." <laughs> <laughs> Which was so magnificent, and but that was never. Joke. It's, it's great, one isn't of the it? great. And oh. I thought, oh, I'd, I'd love to just have that, mm. but that's not going to ever go with anything I ever do. John Denver, bunch of cunts. Yeah. 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 You put it yeah. on your hand. You've got Denver oh. cunts. So that's how I feel about sunshine on my shoulders. <laughs> Eat shit, motherfuckers. <laughs> oh, there was a lovely one though. I did a. Um, a thing in Edinburgh in 99 I did a lots of 20 minute bits of mm. shows um, and that was one of those ones where I would get bored halfway through a set because I was doing it four times a day mm. and at wow. some point in show three or four my brain would go you've said that yeah oh god and yeah. Think, have, yeah but have I said it here mm. oh shit um, I don't know but I was doing a thing called um, women in comedy <laughs> what was it about? <laughs> Again, the very idea. The yes, very idea. Skirt. It was subtitle skirts. Um, <laughs> ah, them, Scott, them. Yeah. Um, and Lucy Porter was doing it because she's, she's a woman, a woman mm. and she's in comedy. Often and the only woman in comedy. Various other people, but Lucy was comparing, and we, we it was mid afternoon in a in the biggest space of the Gilded Balloon, mm-hmm. and there was one audience that was so utterly silent that each of us as we finished our sets instead of saying thank you very much enjoy the rest of Edinburgh you've been great I've been Carrie Quinlan good night we just go Lucy I finished <laughs> <laughs> the most fun I had doing oh, that gig the whole magic. time was this deathly <laughs> Lucy I finished <laughs> <laughs> it was just. It is funny how, like you know, the, 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 the key to the key to being a good stand-up is to make an audience do one thing. But there's also something magic about a stand-up who is trying to make everyone go as silent as possible, <laughs> and when that's done, to leave. Yeah. Great. I've achieved wonderful. everything I came here for. Yeah, did, I think did Hicks always use that same sign-off in his routines? I think he did. Pretty much, I think. Which, Which is it's, it's beautiful. Do you know, it's, it's, also, it's also the most stoned thing anyone's ever it's said. It sort on of is, but, uh, but people also talk about you know later Hicks. Hicks became like irritatingly messianic. Yes, yes. But yeah. early Hicks was like irritatingly messianic, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, they're, 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 so it's the one thing about Hicks, isn't it? He loved comedy and he loved being a stand-up. But I think, like a lot of, especially at the time, a lot of people went, "But there must be more to it than this." What? Because you've mastered the audience. Yeah. And then you think, well, what, I suppose part of the, the, there's a good side to stand up when once you've learned the tricks mm. and you are a master craftsman, you are like Paul Daniels, the linking ring trick. You're the best person at doing this. You can make an audience do anything. When you talk to stand ups, they then get excited about what we do next. And a really good stand up will get excited about, say, a reactive routine that involves the front row of the audience, like Dara O'Brien or Sarah Millican will do. When you go suddenly, it's an organic routine that evolves around your set material. But there's another thing you can do where I'm bored of doing that. 
Can't I be a rock star, a, mess- a messiah? Can I have the answers to everything? Can I be a preacher? And that's, I think, where that sense of I was on stage with a conch and everyone was listening tips over into madness. Yeah. But that's that's partly why I went into it. Because <laughs> you wanted to be in charge. Yeah. Well, um, but I definitely went into stand up in part because of Bill Hicks, because of the that idea that you could make people laugh and make a point. Yeah. Was yeah. intoxicating. Mm. That was a that was an extraordinary thing. And I think I had a funny thing about the purity of stand up. And then for mm. me, doing these one liners, which very quickly became a, a trap, I thought, what what's the point? I've got nothing to say here. I was also twenty two. It was impossible to change my act because I didn't have any life experience. Yeah. Same. And and so I God. began thinking, I've got nothing to say. Why am I wasting everyone's time? That's yeah, that, that's a that's... very Hicksian idea. There's no point doing it unless you've got something to give. Everyone but a rare a rare few stand ups. Once you've done a lot of stand-up comedy, you know how it works. There's not, there's not actually, for most, much magic to it. It's, you know, it's some, it's some cogs and some wheels. Some mechanisms. And once, you, yeah, and once, once you've cracked that, it becomes much less interesting. I found mm. it much less interesting yeah. because I didn't. I guess I didn't. I, I, I got to that point quite quickly again, and I didn't have any life experience. We're, we're the same age, and so. I had nothing sort of to do with it. No. And it, I didn't find it interesting enough. And there are probably there are a handful of comics I'd go and see now. Mm. Because I think who are doing, you know, Dan yeah. Kitts and people like that, yeah. who are brilliant and doing something slightly else I with think it. I'm, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't know what those techniques are as a practitioner, but I think one of the reasons I got disillusioned with watching it is I could work it out as an audience member and a writer. I know where the rhythms are and where the beats are. And I stopped being interested in watching other people do it, even though I can't do it. I went, oh, it's a little bit like I can't play the piano, but I know what a 12-bar blues sounds like. And someone playing it is less impressive once you know it's only three chords. And I think that three-chord nature of bog-standard stand-up becomes very boring to watch. And then you get fascinated by people who either have taken it further and are doing, asking questions of the form, seeing what they can do with storytelling, stuff like that, or audience relationships, stuff like they're playing with the weight of their role and their authority. Or you start getting interested in people who've gone from stand-up into things like narrative or film, where genuinely the mechanisms there mystify you still. If you're into into dance, then you don't constantly go and see productions of Swan Lake. You go and see the hokey cokey, yeah, the mystery of the hokey cokey. <laughs> <laughs> Any art that you're into, if it's done at the forefront and the, and the vanguard, and people are doing exciting work, it's always thrilling. The, a great way to really fall out of love with stand up is to do it. I couldn't watch it for years yeah. afterwards. Really? And yeah. even now, if wow. people years. say, "Do you want to go and see some stand up?" It's it's absolutely yeah. dependent on who's on. I, I wouldn't yeah. go to a comedy club anymore. When stand up is is good, there is nothing else like it because it's uh, it feels whether it is or not, it feels like a unique and once in a lifetime show. Mm. That's the beauty of stand-up. You know if you go and see it the next night, it's going to be slightly different. But again, that's Edinburgh, I think. I think when yeah. people have crafted their hour rather than trotted out their 20 minutes, yeah. it's an entirely different beast and that's when it becomes an art form. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, so I went, from, I went from stand-up into acting. I, um, when I gave up, I went to drama school and, and had, again, that same experience of I'm in a group, everyone's pretty supportive. This mm. is brilliant this is what i was after and in fact it was what i was after before i was applying for drama school when i was doing the new act competitions and i got absolutely nowhere because i was dreadful um and then then sort of learned through stand-up some helpful things and some massively unhelpful things for acting oh really what's what's unhelpful that you learn for acting the most the most unhelpful the the biggest thing i learned from stand-up that i could see a connection with the acting thing that was was an unhelpful thing which was in stand-up, you've got the you've got barriers up all the time. 
you're always on the lookout for a heckle. Just it could come any minute. And this, and this could be the show that where I die. This could, you're under attack. So you're defensive. Yeah, you're yeah, absolutely. You're def- and and in acting, that's absolutely hopeless. The, the vul- <laughs> vulnerability is is massively important. It's far I'm far more open playing Shakespeare than I ever was as me on stage mm, as a wow. stand up. Far more, which was really odd to to work out and and took and took three years of drama school and probably more than that to. It was it was great. I did I, my first year of drama school. The head of movement, who was a brilliant woman called Wendy Allnut, basically wanted to beat the stand up out of me. Mm. And wow. I've uh, seen a lot of stand ups. I'd like to. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> and um and but very gently but very firmly wanted to get rid of all this comedy shit. And you know, actually, where where are you, sort of thing. Having you know n- now as an actor and having and having learnt about acting and learnt more about that, that's more magical. In, in a way that learning about stand-up made it far less magical. It was really interesting. Wow. When I see a good acting performance now, it blows me away more than there's it more, did before. There's more to reveal in it. I think maybe that's the thing with stand-up is that it's... It's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like uh, if you know how sausages are made, sausages are less appetising. Yeah. Mm. There's a funny thing, which is, as a stand-up, you're also aware that nothing that you say is ever going to be one iota as funny as the fun that you have with your friends in a pub. And so it's a funny thing where you're chasing for laughs that are never going to be as good as the good time you could be having if you weren't sitting watching a stand-up doing it, but you were in a pub having a drink. Are you saying the thing that I suspect is true of stand-up is it is to being funny in a pub what porn is to actual sex. Mm. It is acting as if you're the funniest person in the pub. But actually, you're just acting. Yeah. People, well, people go out and do stand-up shows when that's the last thing they want to do. They're having a terrible day. It's awful. They've got a family member ill, and they have to go out there and get them, get them yuck chucks, oh, and you know, I can't, get them yucks. I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine going out there and making people laugh and being your stand-up persona when you're having a shit day. It must mm. be one of the most confusing and soul-destroying. But, but it is, and it isn't because it's not really about having a good time or being funny. It's about saying the lines that you know to get a reaction, which you may not even hear. Right. It's 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 an art. It's an art. It's what you do. I'm talking of of just it can't be a good time all the time. Just uh, I, I brought this with me, which is um, it's Bill Hicks's obituary from the Guardian, oh, and yeah. this was sixth of March, nineteen ninety four. And the reason it I kept it is this is the way that I found out Bill Hicks had died. So I was a huge fan of his. And predating social media, he wasn't a big enough name to make it onto television, yeah. onto the news. Um, this was the first time that... It, so he died in February, and then about a week later, there was a Guardian obit. So I opened it up, and Bill Hicks, the funny man, was dead. But what this obituary really does is it really sets up what he would become in death, which is they really sort of talk about he was one of the most daring American stand-up comedians of his generation. They really sort of set out. And what was interesting about Hicks is people knew how good he was at the time. And his death really just just it nailed it. It just it really nailed it because it it, it locked him in aspect. Yeah. You know? And it's uh, there's a line in here where where uh, Hicks had written a letter to John Law, who was the, yes. the journalist yeah. who wrote some brilliant books. A great one on um, Barry Humphreys, which is really worth reading. Well. Uh, and uh, he said that uh, Hicks had written him a letter uh, quoting Noam Chomsky. And the young me has highlighted this: uh, the responsibility of the intellectual is to tell the truth and expose lies. And that was, I think, it's a very good summation of what he was doing. He was trying to tell the truth as he saw it. And actually, has there been another comic that really does that? That's a very good question. He's, yeah. in, he's in the 
tradition and they're placing the tradition there in American comedy with Lenny Bruce mm. and probably the person no one ever mentioned, which is George Carlin, mm. yeah, who I think true. is probably the only person I've ever seen who comes close as a sort of countercultural figure who was just a truth teller. But it's an astonishing stand up. But I think there's there's rhythms in common between George Carlin's weariness, uh, humanity's disappointing nature mm. and Hicks's pure misanthropy that what you're saying when you, when there's an obituary for him and he's not a major figure it, enough to be on the news is to say this guy was in that tradition of whom there are very few yeah and uh, he also he did talk about his his uh, comparisons with him and Lenny Bruce uh, Hicks and he said we are, we are similar insofar as when we're on stage we're being ourselves and that's the important thing this this obituary has the best single line that you could ever hope for in an obituary he spoke his maverick heart and he was very very funny that really is just yeah that'll do that's thrilling it's perfect that's where we end this Mark Haynes Carrie Quinlan thank you very much for coming on Rule 3 thank you you can have a time talking your way out of that ticket you know how fast you were going son uh 70 you're going 300 miles an hour buddy what the hell are you doing Sorry, sir, I had this large coffee back at that truck stop. I'm fucking flying. Huge coffee. I bought some dirt. I thought that'd slow me down. But no. Biggest motherfucking coffee I ever seen. He pumped it right up my nose. I'm just skin covering coffee right now. The BBC New Comedy Awards are an annual event uh, designed to find the best new stand-up in the UK and uh, pretty much what happens is uh, they're organised by Radio 4 and sponsored by BBC Talent 2000. Uh, The rules are that all our contestants tonight haven't done a paid gig at the time they enter the competition. So when they enter the competition, they're all amateurs. Caroline Quinlan, first, first lady on. Um, She's really, really good, isn't she? Very confident. I could feel myself shaking throughout. And blowing on Monica is an obvious game, but the first time I've heard it, I thought that, was, uh, that made me laugh. Uh, yeah, it felt, it felt okay. It felt like there were people were laughing. <laughs>